Hello, my lovely people, and welcome back to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. This week, we're going to be talking about Death Cast a Spell, Season 1, Episode 11, first aired December 30th, 1984. IMDb says, a popular nightclub hypnotist is discovered murdered during a private press call. Let's get into this one. This is definitely one I really like, so (laughs) I'm sure you'll be able to tell. So we open at the Lake Tahoe Evergreen. Now, I hadn't figured out where we were. I completely missed the fact that it said Lake Tahoe, uh, which I did have to look up. And it is in Nevada, but it also, the actual lake, uh, does border California as well. I couldn't remember if it was, I believe that it was Nevada. And I was right, according to Wikipedia. Plus the fact that it was a casino kind of kind of figured it was Nevada. Anyway, so we come in to a hypnotist show. He has several audience members on stage and we find out his name is Caliastro. Now, which is actually a super great name for an entertainer, just saying. But it's spelled interestingly. Uh, It's spelled C-A-G-L-I-O-S-T-R-O, but it's spelled, the G is silent, so, yeah, fancy. Uh, So we're in the midst of the show. It's getting ready to end, actually. And he says, when I snap my fingers, you will turn into your favorite animal. So he snaps his finger and one lady uh, turns into an elephant, I'm guessing, with a trunk and <laughs> is making some screeching noise. Um, one woman uh, turns into a chicken, somebody's a monkey, and various other uh, animals. And then we see Joan, uh, who we learn is Jessica's editor's assistant. So we see her and she is secretly tape recording this show. The next thing we hear Caliastro say, he stops them and he says, when I snap my fingers, you will come out and you will be naked, right? So he snaps his finger And they come to realization, still under his spell, and they see themselves as naked. All except one woman, the woman who was a chicken a minute ago. Um, Everyone is like trying to hide and cover themselves with their hands and runs off stage. This woman who was a chicken before definitely got to strutting again. Sees that she's naked, quote unquote naked, and just struts like she is on a runway. Um, I'm like, okay, body positive. Okay, man, good for you. So next, uh, the next scene, we meet Joe and Regina. Now, Joe is the owner of the casino and Regina is his wife. Um, She, why can't, she does look younger than him, but actually they might not be that much There may not be that much of an age difference, but she clearly takes care of herself and she's well put together. So you could see why he would want her as his wife. 
And their argument that they're having is because he believes that Regina is cheating on him with Cagliostro. Now, mind you, Cagliostro lives in the building. Like he is the paid act. Uh, We learned that he has a three-year contract, I believe it is, uh, to do the show. Three years for $2 million. Um, I might be wrong, but we'll get to that in, in a little bit. So he lives there. Joe and Regina live there as well. So this is really bold Joe. Joe definitely does not seem like the type of person who would take kindly to his wife sneaking around. And you can't sneak around when you all live together (laughs) with this other man. So did she not think that employees would tell him just so to protect themselves? Because if I was an employee, I would be like, yo, I better tell him. um, Because if he finds out and he finds out that I knew, not only will I be fired, but I might be like, not found, like disappear. So I would be concerned enough to rat on her. But it seems like Caliastro is not even trying to hide this affair. So they're just blatant with it, which is disrespectful, period. Um, so she's like, he, I, I didn't do anything. I didn't want to do anything. I, he had me under his spell, to which Joe correctly said, no one can make you do something under hypnosis that you didn't actually want to do. And she was like, yeah, okay, well, maybe I felt that he was attractive, you know. Um, mind you, like, Callie Astro and Joe look like they're the same age. To me, Okay, no, I take that back. Uh, Callie Astro does look a good five to ten years older than, than Joe, depending on the lighting. So this was very shocking to me. Not the cheating, blatantly cheating on your husband when you all live in the same casino. But Joe's reaction, where he then grabs her around the neck. um, I was completely surprised by this because, um, you know, this is a Sunday night show on ABC and to show like this level of violence between a man and a woman was off-putting. And I've seen this episode a number of times before. And I had to fast forward because I, I was definitely uncomfortable with this. And so I fast forwarded, but basically not only, and this was the even more disturbing part of this, was that he then um, she apologizes. She's like, oh, no, I only love you. And, you know, it's over and whatever, whatever. And that he then kisses her. Like after, like, I, I don't mean to laugh. That's nervous laughter. But the after he literally was choking her, that now he's forgiving her. He's has his hands on her face, which is still very aggressive and threatening. And then kisses her and... I felt bad for her because I'm like, this is a very abusive situation that you're in. I don't know how you're going to get out of this, Um, but I'm scared for you, ma'am. And I'm I'm surprised that they showed that, but that was happening in people's homes. So I guess. So now the next scene, we're in the hallway and it's Cagliastro. 
Sherry Diamond. I love that name, actually, especially for his assistant, like kind of stripperish, which makes sense, but kind of stripperish, but also glitz and glamour type thing. She's his assistant and his security guard, Zach. Okay. So <laughs> that his security guard's name is Zach. Okay. The only other Zach that I can think of is Zach Morris from Saved by the Bell. Uh, so, <laughs> and this was definitely before Saved by the Bell, but honestly, but other than that, never. Anyway, so um, Joe comes up to this group of Caliastro, Sherry, Diamond, and Zach. And he's like, I'm going to get rid of you, Caliastro. This is your, that was your last show. You're getting out of here. Oh, okay. So, and he's, Caliastro was like, you can't get rid of me. I have a deal, a contract for $1 million for three years. Now, this is 1984. That's a lot of money. Like for three years, $1 million that, you know, now we have people who are making much, much, much more than that. But $1984 versus $2020, that was a lot for him to be the main act at a casino um, in Lake Tahoe, like not even on the strip in uh, Las Vegas. So he was going to pay good money. But he said, Caliastro was like, whether I perform or not, I'm getting that million dollars. Joe threatens him. And when Caliastro was like, I, you know, I'm going to take, I could take everything, including the fair Regina, which of course sets Joe off. And he goes after Caliastro, who is smart enough to have a security guard because he knows that he's high profile and he's a jerk who is sleeping with his um, boss's wife in the place that they both live in. Um, So Zach kind of subdues or restrains, restrains Joe. I'm like, honestly, I think Joe could have taken him. To be honest, he looks like the type that's been fighting since two days after birth. Like literally just like punching people in the face just on GP. Um, So, (laughs) uh, but we got to move the story along, you know. Zach is younger than him, whatever. But he's still Robert Loja, so mm, he would have gotten Zach together. So anyway, so the next scene, we're at check-in. Jessica's checking in and she goes to give a credit card. They're like, oh no, it's all it's all covered. Don't worry about it. And so she asked for the room number of Marilyn Dean. Now, we've spoken about this before and how much information you can get from the person at the front desk in hotels back in 1984 because like people can ask for you they can tell you the people will tell you the room number give you a phone could directly connect you let you into the hotel room just nonsense just really unsafe i will say that I appreciate the changes that have made that your privacy with regard to that private. If you're living, if you're in the hotel, they'll just connect you to the room. 
they won't give you any more information. But like, oh, the person went out. Don't, don't, don't tell people. Don't, don't tell people that. But she asked for Marilyn Dean's room. And as the hotel um, clerk is like, oh, we don't have her. She hasn't checked in yet. Um, At this point, Joan pops up and she says, oh, hey, 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 Jess. Um, So Marilyn, she's got stuck. She's going to come in tomorrow. It's not it's not a problem. But, uh, you know, I'm sure you're tired and want to lay down. But like, how about later we have a meal together and talk about my I mean, your I mean, Marilyn, uh, idea about your next book. So, of course, it's Jessica. So she already knows that this is a setup and that this is Joan's idea. But she's willing to humor her because Jessica is a lady um, and she is very polite. So I guess and she was like, I'm here already. So I guess let's see where this is going. So um, we now see them at dinner at um in a restaurant with a bar so they're eating and Joan is telling her about Cagliostro and how she could write a book about him and um that you know it would be a great idea Marilyn thinks it's a great idea of course Jessica sees right through it and is like yeah no Marilyn would never so <laughs> And so Joan's like, oh, well, I thought you would love it. And he's like, whatever, just tell Marilyn that, you know, I didn't like it. She was like, oh, actually, I told the editor, like, I guess the, um, her publisher about it, because I thought you would just go wild for the idea. I'm like, you're really just like stepping all the way out of line. And so Jessica's like, uh, yeah. So how about we stay the evening and in the morning you can tell, um, I forgot, she gave the name of the guy. You can tell him that I did not like the, um, I didn't like Cagliastro, so uh, I'm not interested in writing the, the book. So she's like, oh, thank you. I'm like, why can't she have said that before? Like, I don't understand what Jessica said that would have been impossible to do uh, just already. So <laughs> like, you can just say, well, I pitched the idea. I thought she would be wild about it. Um, however, Cagliastro didn't live up to the hype. So she's not writing it. But apparently Joan couldn't figure out a good lie. Um well, you know what? She's an editor, the editor's assistant. Uh, so she's not the creator. She's um, She just works on the creator's work. So I get it. She couldn't figure out a good lie. Um, I really thought like her career was just over. Um, I don't know. She must not know Jessica well because Jessica will cover for you as long as you didn't murder someone. She... <laughs> She'll she'll help you out. Like she's not gonna let you get hit by the bus. She's gonna pull you onto the sidewalk and and help you get home. Like she is just that type of person. So we then see Cagliastro come in to the restaurant. And he's with, of course, Sherry and Zach. And um they get seated. It looks like that's their usual table, like in the center 
of attention, but people are going on about their day. Like no one's swarming him. Um, then we see Regina who looks amazing. Like throughout this entire episode, Regina is really serving just, just 1984 realness, but it would translate well today with a little tweak here and there. She looked flawless. Um, even when she's like technically like kind of sneaking around, like she knows. I'm sure she knows that Cagliostro, that's probably the only bar in the casino, like the only restaurant, let's be honest. But I'm, she went down there looking for him. Let's be completely honest, because you know she could have gotten room service. Her husband owns the place. She could definitely get room service. But she came down um, incognito, but she never could because she's gorgeous. Um, comes down, orders her drink, and then, oh, surprise, Caliastro's there. She sees him. He sees her. He waves her over because he... Is just that bold that he does not even care that her husband was willing to literally fight him um, because of his relationship with Regina. She sees this. She then like hightails it out of there. <laughs> he's like, oh, okay, whatevs. Uh, so he's not phased by this. But I was like, clearly you wanted to see him. Maybe you were testing yourself to see that if you could resist him, um, maybe that's what that was. But she knew he was going to be down there. Um, so then we meet Bud Michaels and Andy Townsend. So they enter the restaurant. Um, Bud Michaels is, they're both reporters. Bud Michaels being the more experienced of the two. And Bud is clearly drunk. And the thing is, he, I don't know who their makeup artist is. Uh, I don't know if he in real life was an alcoholic, but he looked it. Like in his face, he looked haggard. Um, he His clothes were clean. They were loud. They were very, very loud. <laughs> very loud. Um, but he just had like this look in this countenance about him. Even, you know, you can pretend to be drunk. You can actually be drunk and stumbling around, but he really had just like his coloring, the look on his face that really just led to it being clear that not only was he an alcoholic, but he was currently drunk. Um, and not everybody can do that. Like not everybody can pull off like the just, yeah, you can stumble around and slur your words and everything, but there was just something about his presence that seemed that of an alcoholic. And I was like, he's an excellent actor because he played that off. And uh, <laughs> I was like, okay. So Bud then goes up to, Caliastro or stumbles up to him and he demands uh he uh, slash request an interview a real interview and um I noticed that Andy is standing there just looking at Bud now he doesn't have a blank face 
but he's kind of looking at him like, you're really embarrassing yourself. Like, what are you doing? Just like, a, <laughs> you know, like if your parents are like yelling at a teacher or something like that, and you're just like, what are you doing? <laughs> this is embarrassing. <laughs> that was the look on his face, a look of concern and question. <laughs> about how did we get here? Like, how did we actually get to you being visibly drunk, which is, we find out later is new. He he is an alcoholic, but he usually can keep it together much better than this. So Andy is just like confused and embarrassed. That's what I get from that look. Kelly Astro is not moved by this. So he makes a proposition to Bud. He's like, you know what? You're right. In a half an hour in my room, I will tell you every detail you want to know. And you are free to publish every word of it if you can remember it. And so, of course, Bud is like, what do you mean by that? To which Kelly Astro says, there is one caveat. I have to be able to hypnotize you. I will then tell you everything you want to know. And if you can remember it, then you can print it. And so um, Bud was like, what does that prove? And he says it would prove that I am, if I am in fact, um, you know, a charlatan then you know, but if I am the greatest hypnotist in the world, then I, I can just prove it by completely, um, making it completely impossible for you to remember anything that I said. So um, he's like, it's like, whatever. Like, I'm not, whatever. You just saying words. (laughs) He's like, whatever. And Joan like runs off. She's like, oh my goodness, this is the perfect opportunity. Like, ah, oh my gosh. So... Bud then storms off as well and Andy catches up with him and he's like, I'm not going to that charade. You know, I'm not participating in that. Who does he think he is? And Andy's like, but you have to, if you don't go, you'll look like a fool. And he's like, you round up some newspaper men and you go, you know what? You, you do it and you write it up. This is on you. Um, And so Andy makes a comment about his, Andy's father being a newspaperman who um, was Bud Michael's boss, right? Stick a pin in that clue. So then the next scene, we are in the hallway, a different hallway, and Joan catches up with Kelly Astro. And he says, uh, she says, oh, I heard your proposition and I have to let you know that this fabulously famous author is staying here uh, thinking about writing a book. And so he's like, who's this fabulously famous author that you speak about? And she says, Jessica Fletcher. And he says, oh, Mrs. Fletcher. And um, well, yeah, I would be honored for her to come you know, 20 minutes upstairs in my room, whatever, whatever. It's like, we'll be there. And she runs off. So then next we're at the bar and Andy approaches Jessica and he definitely recognizes her. 
and he calls her by name. And so he says, you know, I found a few reporters, but uh, I'd love for you to join us. It will really bring some class to it. And she said, thank you for the invitation, but uh, I'm going to bed. All right. I'm not dealing with this sham. (laughs) I don't know what this is. I didn't, Jones and got me over here and um, stuck out in Lake Tahoe. <laughs> I'm just trying to make it till tomorrow so I can go home. I'm not about to to go to this situation. And I'm sure she's also thinking, well, I can't be hypnotized. So what's the point of me going to this? This is whatever. Y'all have fun now, kids. So, <laughs> so then we get to the next scene. And Jessica is walking through the casino um, and a fan comes up and it's like, I recognize you. You're Nurse, Nurse Beecham. I always watch Doctors After Hours. And Jessica's like, yeah, no, that's not me. Like, yes, you know, I understand, you know, fans and everything like that. You got to be kind of undercover. But oh my goodness. You know, I'm here with my friends. We all watch the show. Can you just, we're just right over here. And she's like, no, I'm not, I'm not who you think I am, ma'am. I I don't want to be mean or nasty, but like, I'm, I'm not that person. So I don't want to disappoint you. And so Jessica sees Andy across the, the room heading towards the elevators. And she's like, oh, Mr. Townsend, Mr. Townsend. And he doesn't turn around. He doesn't hear her. Uh, they, there was a distance between the two, to be honest. Plus, she's literally in the casino with things ringing and beeping and buzzing and all of that. He doesn't even turn around. So she then looks. She sees in the lady's bag, there is a uh, paperback novel, which happens to be one of Jessica's. So she pulls it out. She was like, I am Jessica Fletcher. I am J.B. Fletcher. See? She turns it around to the um, the book jacket. And she says, that's me. It is literally her. So (laughs) the woman looks at the book, looks at Jessica, who's literally three inches away from the book and says, no, you're not. Grabs the book out of Jessica's hand, puts it in her bag and walks off. Now you are literally carrying a copy of Jessica's one of Jessica's books. And I can understand that you recognize her face because you probably saw her on the jacket of the book and perhaps she does favor the nurse Beecham. Um, so I can understand you being confused about where you know her from and, you know, saying, oh, it must be nurses, uh, nurses after dark, <laughs> must be nurse Beecham from Doctors After Dark. But when she tells you, yeah, I'm famous, but I'm not the famous person you're thinking of, and then shows you proof, and then you get mad, uh, (laughs) outrageous. Like, she was a Karen before we knew what Karens were. You're mad at this person for telling you, yes, I actually am a celebrity, but I'm not the celebrity you think I am. Here is proof. Here is literally my face on a book that you purchased to read. And that's probably where you recognize, that has to be where you recognize me from. And for her to literally look at 
Jessica's face in person and look at the book where she looks exactly the same and say no and snatch the book out of her hand. Outrageous. Okay. (laughs) Outrageous. So now Jessica has just been disrespected (laughs) to her face. Um, So she moves on with life because honestly, so she bumps into Joan, who's extremely excited. And she's like, we got an invitation. We got an invitation. We got to go. Jessica refuses because, again, she thinks this is a circus. And so Joan is like, you're a writer. Aren't you the least bit curious? And this is definitely a trigger for Jessica. Because she's like, actually, yes, I am curious. So she's like, what the heck? Let's go up. So they, the next scene, we're in the room and Cagliastro is putting everybody under. They clearly have this like dazed look in their eye. He tells them to put up their arms. He's now checking as to see if they'll go down. They won't. Um, and it's a split. It keeps going back and forth. We see Jessica and Joan in the elevator And like 50 million people in this elevator too. Ah, the days before COVID. So anyway, we go back to the room and Cagliastro starts his story. He's like in 1972 in England. And so I'm guessing he's talking about his career because he clearly wasn't born in 1972. So then we're back in the hallway outside of the door. Uh, Jessica and Joan get off the elevator. Joan is so super excited. She's like, we're here, we're here. Oh my goodness, we couldn't get the elevator faster. Whatever. Zach is hearing none of it. He's like, listen, the door's closed. The show has started. And I couldn't even unopen it if I wanted to because the door is locked and I don't have a key. So at this point, Jessica's like, good, I'm going to bed. Uh, she turns, as she's getting, trying to pull Joan away, they hear a glass break in the room. Zach starts banging on the door. He's like, Mr. Cagliostro, Mr. Cagliostro. And trying to get into the door. At this exact moment, the elevator doors open again. And it's Joe. He's getting off the elevator. And he's like, what's going on here? And um, I don't remember if it was Jessica. Uh, but someone says, like, we heard glass break. And no one's answering the door. So Joe has the master key. He opens the door and they all pile in. (laughs) At least they stay at the door. That's true. And we see Cagliastro dead on the floor with a knife sticking out of his back. And the camera pans and we see all of the reporters sitting there with this dazed look in their face. Absolutely no reaction whatsoever. So the next scene, we're, we are still in the room. Now the police are there. We meet Lieutenant Burkamp, uh, who is smoking an actual pipe. Now, okay, granted, we don't see any smoke come out of it. So maybe it's just, he just has it for looks or something like that. He's just used, maybe it helps him think. Outrageous, but at least his pipe did not appear to be lit or have tobacco in it. Uh, it was still a little off-putting, but 1984. Anyway, so he, 
I don't know what to make of him as yet. Don't hate him. We do start to like him because he does respect Jessica, but he, I'm not sure just yet now that we're just meeting him. So he's like, okay, I'll get to you. Thank you. You're staying in the hotel. All right, we'll get to you. Um, Jessica then decides to take a stroll around the room because it's Jessica and she tends to stroll around crime scenes. (laughs) Like they don't have to preserve evidence. And she's over by the sliding glass doors to the balcony and Lieutenant Burkamp comes over and is like, hey, 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 this is a crime scene. Like, you can't be here. You're not police. And she's like, isn't it curious that there's this hole here? And and of course, the lieutenant's like, yeah, well, they used it to break in to, um, to get in. And she's like, but it's too far away from the lock. Like, no normal arm is going to be able to reach from there to to unlock the door. And he's like, oh, you know what? You're right. Uh, so I, I don't know why it's broken. Maybe they broke it on after they left um, to throw us off. She's like, okay, I don't know why they would then break the glass out. I, I don't know. But he he does respect what she said and he does take it into consideration. So then we meet Dr. Yambert and he is a psychologist He's telling the lieutenant, like, I don't know what you want me to do with these people. Like, I didn't hypnotize them, so I don't know how to get them out of this. It's not like, you know, he didn't say this, but it's not like you put smelling salt or something and they just come out of it. Like, yes, I'm a doctor, but like, I don't know what the, <laughs> I don't know what you want me to do. So then Jessica, who's still there, says, well, her editor's assistant, however she puts it, she puts it very nicely. Uh, Joan taped the show and maybe if they use the segment where Caliastro brings the people out of the trance, maybe it'll work on these people. So they get Joan's tape recorder, they fast forward it and they actually play it and the reporters come too. Now, I, my question is, <laughs> so there is clearly a outline of a body in tape. So they have taped off the outline of Caliastro's body. Mind you, there's no blood on the ground, but separate issue. But they are allowing everybody, including now these reporters who have now come to, uh, who are just sitting there like, hey, what's up? So not even thinking, like when they came to, I understand you could be confused, but they're just sitting there like, so when are we going to get this started? As if the last thing they remember, there were the six of them and Caliastro. Like only one person's like, uh, what's going on here? Why are there police here? Everyone else is like, so when are we getting started? (laughs) Then they're like, you know, the lieutenant's like, okay, yes, you are witnesses to a crime. Calm down. We got to speak with you, whatever, whatever. And they're like trying to get the story. They're not even concerned that they're basically stepping over where a dead body was. Nobody looks down. No one's concerned that um, there was somebody murdered there because there's an outline of a body. Nobody is concerned at the fact that Caliastro has been murdered. Um, So... (laughs) These reporters are trash. And I think it's interesting that 
the reporters are written this way, that they could care less that uh, somebody died. Like they didn't even take in context clues. Like they didn't even just take a nice sweep around the room to see what was going on. Um, after the in, lieutenant said that a crime had been committed, no one just took a, a minute to to see. Like they just immediately approached him as opposed to just taking a quick scope around the room because the detective was literally standing next to the outline of the body. But you know what this shows? This shows how the writers of Murder, She Wrote felt about reporters. Um, So (laughs) especially we'll see tabloid reporters because that's what Bud Michaels is now. Um, We'll learn how he got here. But it's a little bit of an insight about how the screenwriters of this show felt about reporters. Just very shady. Very shady. Anyway, so now Jessica is on the job. Like she is, this is a locked door mystery, one of her specialties at this point. And she is intrigued. She is um, curious. Like Joan had said, Joan planted that seed and it's definitely um, taking root. So now the next scene, we're at Dr. Yambert's office and he's explaining what Cagliastro meant when he said that um, I, you would never remember anything. I can permanently prevent you from remembering anything that I said. And so uh, Dr. Yambert explains that it's a memory block, which is uh, occurs uh, by the aid of a suggestion. Now, of course, Jessica, like I'm sure most of the viewers are like, yeah, okay, whatever you say. And she also doubts that she can be hypnotized. And he's like, yes, like you're intelligent. You feel like you can't be hypnotized. How about we do a little experiment? She's like, okay. So he hypnotizes her. And then they kind of, uh, they fade out and they fade back in. He's turning off a tape recorder. He then brings her out. And she's like, see, I told you, you know, what? I, I can't be hypnotized. Thank you for your effort. And he's like, oh, do you want to hear? And she's like, hear what? And so he plays his questions and answers, at least two of them. We don't know how long she was out or all that he asked her. Um, but he says, what do you really think about my office? And say it as if you were a bar fly. And she goes right into it because Angela Lansbury is an amazing actress. Um, she goes right into her drunk voice and shades him and his office. So he says, now say it as a Fifth Avenue society woman or however he put it. And so she goes, falls right into it. She doesn't even miss a beat going from the drunk to the society woman. And um, it's just like, did you get this from a flea market? It was hilarious. She is just like absolutely embarrassed. And it's like, okay, I'm a believer now. I'm a believer. Um, I I get it. I can be hypnotized. It is real. And um, I am sorry that you now know how I really feel about this ja- this janky office. <laughs> I was like, ooh, 
that is embarrassing. Like I, she was too polite to have said that. She would have just thought it, but not thought any less of him. But you want to know, you found out. So, <laughs> so now we are in a room. We see Regina answering the door and it's Zach and he is demanding money from her. She looks scared, although she looks yet again, amazing. Um, and then we go right to the next scene. And so we're at, down at the casino, um, by the slot machines in whatever room or rooms that's in. And Jessica finds Andy. And now the voice on the slot machine is super annoying. It's very mechanical, obviously. This is probably a new thing in 1984. Not the slot machines, but the talking slot machines, because he makes reference to that. But honestly, as somebody who on occasion, uh, especially on a cruise, will take advantage of uh, the ability to gamble while at sea or in New Jersey. And uh, I don't want my uh, slot machine talking to me. Like, I really don't. I really don't. Just ring and um, beep and let me know I want some money. That's it. That's it. Don't don't try to be sassy. Don't try to be funny. I don't need any of that. Okay, y'all can leave that in 1984, to be honest. So um, what we find out here is that um, Andy believes that Bud was putting on, like being a bit extra uh, and acting drunk. He, he says that he's seen him put back a lot of liquor and then just go right into playing billiards or uh, pool um, and without without an issue. And several shots, I think he said, and a large number of shots um, of hard liquor and, and then just going on with life as if nothing happened. Uh, a true sign of an alcoholic, actually. And he said, well, the way he staggered towards the lift. Again, put a pin in that clue. Uh, Andy says further that his dad, he thinks that Bud wanted, did this so that um, Andy could get his chance to write a story. And who knew it would be this big? But... What Andy tells us in another part of this puzzle, he says the same way that my dad gave Bud a chance uh, to do big stories because he was Bud's, he didn't say bureau chief. He said he was Bud's boss um, back when, before the tabloids, back when he was a real reporter. Again, writers being shady. Um and that his father would step back so that Bud could get the story. Uh, so next, we are back at the crime scene, and Lieutenant um, uh, Lieutenant um, Burkamp is sitting there again with his pipe. But again, I don't think it's lit. Um, and he has officers. Well, actually, I don't think they're officers. He has construction workers removing the wall because there's no way that someone could have gotten into this locked room. They are on the penthouse. I think they are in the penthouse. I'm sure. Well, no, 
I take that back. It's Kelly Ostro's room. I think he's one down from the penthouse floor. So, um, he, but very, very high up in the building. Um, and there's no fire escape, which honestly, mm, there's no fire escape. There's no way that they can figure a person was able to get in because they obviously couldn't use the broken, um, the broken window because it was too far from the lock. Um, and if you were going to do that, why not break the lock closer and not have to use a tool or something? It just, it was an inconsequential detail. So they, they're like that. We got to just ignore that hole because it's not, uh, an access point, um, which I also think that for the killer, that was really stupid because it was so far away. Like, uh, this, this person obviously did not do any research. Like they, they were patient, but they really didn't put this together too well. There's always like one flaw. This would have been flawless, but for well, Jessica Fletcher being involved. So there's that. You can't get away with crime like that. But two, something as simple as having broken the glass next to the lock. And it was not clear to me if the glass was broken out or broken in. I don't remember seeing glass on the ground. I don't remember if it was broken out which would be clear, which would clearly mean somebody was inside breaking it out and trying to set up a scene, or if it was broken from the outside in, which would normally, if it was in the right place, indicate that somebody broke the window to get in, to un, uh, to unlock the lock. So Jessica says that the balcony was the only exit, but they're still stumped uh, about how the person got in and how they got out. Uh, the lieutenant alleged, he, he thinks it's Joe and that Joe hired someone to break the glass after he had murdered Cagliastro and, and exited the room. But of course, Jack was outside the room. Jack, Zach was outside the room. So uh, he definitely wouldn't have let Joe in. And... Two, Jessica was like, well, how did that other person, because Joe couldn't have broke the glass because he walked in off the elevator moments after they heard the glass break. And that's when the theory of him, Joe hiring somebody, because he's very powerful. But the question then became, how did they get off of the balcony? Because even if someone... um. Even if he had let, I don't know, but Zach was outside. So it was impossible for Joe to have gotten into the room any other way but the balcony. And that was impossible. So um, the lieutenant was really just like throwing things out there. He, he's, he's stumped. He's upset. And um, however, he is not disrespectful to Jess. I think he's still listening to her, which is always a good sign uh, with law enforcement here. Because if you work with her, you're going to solve this case faster. So like, let's, 
Just work with her. It's easier on everybody. So then the next scene, we're at the gym and we see Sherry Diamond and she is putting in work, okay? (laughs) She is putting in work. She is like drenched in sweat and she's working on her biceps and um, Jessica comes in. She's like, oh, this is such a fancy stationary bike. I usually just jog because, yeah, she got to keep in shape. Um, so what we learned from Sherry is that Bud Michaels used to be uh, a really well-respected reporter. And then that um, he knew Cagliostro back when Cagliostro was still in England and that um, when he was, I'm sorry, when he was a news correspondent in Europe, Bud, that's when he knew Cagliostro. Bud believed that Cagliostro was using hypnosis to pull off his blackmail scheme. We don't get any other details about the blackmail scheme, um, but that is what basically convinced Bud to look into Cagliostro. So Cagliastro, Sherry Diamond tells us that Cagliastro tricked Bud into printing lies. And he then, once it was printed, turned around and sued Bud, his supervisor, and the newspaper and won. So Bud and the supervisor, his bureau chief, were fired. And then about a year later, Bud was finally able to get a job and it was working at some tabloid where he is now. So we also learn from Sherry Diamond, like I said before, she has a very, she has an entertainment friendly name, especially if she was a stripper, come to find out she was. In Vegas, where Kelly Astro found her, we don't know how long they've been working together, I don't believe, but he found her stripping on a flying trapeze let that sink in. She was stripping (laughs) on a flying trapeze. Only in Vegas. Honestly and truly only in Vegas. So so then we're at the phone banks and this is a really short scene and Joan overhears Andy on a phone call. He's calling Sherry Diamond's former employer and says that, oh, I was told that she didn't, she worked there, she didn't act, oh, on flying trapeze. So Joan hears this and runs off because, you know, she gets a little bit of information and she runs off with an idea. So now we're down at the pool and Bud is laying out with his sunglasses. He's looking 100% better. So that's what I mean, like, for him to go, and it's probably the makeup artist, but also him, uh, that made him look like, you know those pictures, um, and we had one in our house, I don't know why, but of the sad clowns, like they have like the five o'clock shadow, just like a red nose, their face is just really droopy and sad. That is who he reminded me of when earlier scenes in the earlier scene when he first confronts Cagliastro. Now he has some color in his face. Uh, he looks fully awake. His eyes aren't bloodshot. They were half closed earlier. Now they're, they're, um, he's alert. Now this jacket, 
he was wearing was so loud. I had to turn my television down. It was just out, just disrespectfully loud, just outrageous. Because I'm fine with pattern jackets. I, I am, but just there was something about that jacket in the sun, even inside though. I, inside, it was bright too. But he's outside in the full sun, plus the tie was just clashing. I, it was a lot. Uh, I watched it. I didn't avert my eyes, but it was bright and loud. <laughs> and he says to her, oh, would you like a snort? A snort of what? Um, it clearly wasn't cocaine, um, but <laughs> I, I, I'm assuming he was talking about an alcoholic beverage. I have never heard of um, having an alcoholic beverage referred to as having a snort. Okay, <laughs> they're they're talking back and forth, and he, she's like, I can't scoop you because I'm writing a whole book. If I do, I don't know why. Um, Joan is going around telling people this. I haven't agreed to anything. And so they're both, Joan has asked Sherry to come up and they, they, um, (laughs) Joan's asking Sherry, well, how do you think this could have happened? And then Sherry walks over to probably about two, about two good feet from the edge of the roof, right? And she's like, I don't know. And so Joan was like, well, maybe someone scaled down. Well, like, take a look, see, see what you think. And so Sherry Diamond actually does. Like she takes, she moves forward. She didn't take a step, but she moved her, her body forward and looked and then was like, get off me. I don't have to do this. I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to ask questions, answer your questions. And she storms off. Now, um, Joan thinks, yes, I've gotten her. See, she gave herself away. Um, Joan's theory is that, um, oh, I'm sorry, no. How could I forget this? Sherry was like, how would I know how somebody would have gotten down from the roof to Cagliostro's balcony? I just took my clothes off on a swing. (laughs) I'm not an acrobat. Anyway... So Joan's theory is that she lowered herself from the roof to Cagliostro's balcony. Uh, Lieutenant Burkamp is like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, Jessica's like, one, she doesn't have a motive. She would be out of a job, okay, and have to go back to stripping on a swing. <laughs> Which, you know what, if that's what she wanted to do, she did keep in shape, you know, options. But two... Jessica points out it took several men to rig this situation up. So how would she have been able to do it in the 30 minutes? Well, less than 30 minutes between the time Cagliostro made the offer and the time of the actual murder. After Jessica points out how many people it actually took to set this up, uh, Lieutenant Bergkamp's like, we're back in the same place. Like that, that theory doesn't work. So now we're downstairs. We, they just got off the ele- the elevator doors open and Joe is standing there. <laughs> and, um, 
he's pissed. Like, I don't even, did he press the button? <laughs> he's just standing there with his hand on his hip. And he's like, oh, and the door opened. <laughs> it's like he was, I, I don't know who stands like that in front of an elevator, but like directly in front of it. So the door is open and maybe that's the elevator that the only elevator that goes to the roof. So he knew they would be coming down that way. I don't know. But he uh, he tells Lieutenant Burkamp, like, when are your officers going to be out of here? I'm losing business. You know, people don't want to stay. People are canceling their reservations. Like, hurry it up. And he's like, it's going to take however long it's going to take. Like, we don't know what who did this. We don't know how they got in. So you know, calm down. There's nothing I can do. So the Lieutenant walks off, Joan walks off and Jessica is left there. And so Jessica indicates, well, it could have been you, you know, you had your reasons for being a good suspect to us. And so Joe was like, why would I kill him? My lawyers figured out a way that we could, um, cancel the contract. It's called a morals clause. And I wouldn't have to have paid him a dime. Why would I have to murder him? He's like, uh, because when he left, he could have left your wife. She didn't say that. I'm saying that, uh, because clearly that was an option. So (laughs) Joe also tells us that, uh, he was with Regina uh, at the time, right before he went upstairs and uh, they found Cagliostro dead. So both him and his wife have an alibi. Um, like he didn't necessarily use a vulgar gesture, but I could have lived without seeing that. Anyway, so then we see we're out front and we see Regina suspiciously leaving the hotel. She's looking around. She has on, again, a really well put together clandestine outfit. Like (laughs) she's going to do, not actual crime, but she's going to do crime. She's going to do something shady. Spoiler alert, she's not the murderer, but she's going to do something shady. And she is just like incredibly well put together. Just, she looks like a spy and that she's going to do something shady but just the classiest of the spies. So Jessica sees this and uh, Regina actually has a car. So she hops in her car, which is, of course, is parked right there because your husband owns the casino. So prime parking. And uh, she probably had someone bring it around for her, to be honest. And she takes off. So Jessica is looking around. She stops a guy who's on a motorcycle and she's like, hey, um, do you know where I can get a taxi? And he's like, oh, well, it should be around in a few minutes. Side note, who is this guy? <laughs> like, does he work for the, the casino? Like, who, who is he? And I, I was just confused. He just honestly came out of nowhere. <laughs> anyway, he's like, oh, well, it should be around in a few minutes. And she's like, oh, that'll be too late. Uh, I need to follow that car. And he's like, oh, like in the movies? She's like, yeah, but it's too late. He's like, no, hop on. So Jessica gets on the motorcycle and they pull off. It is clearly her. However, a bit we see some of the ride as uh, the nice young man is following Regina's car. So during the ride, 
we clearly see that it's probably Jessica's son double. But then we get to the actual place far enough away that they won't be seen from where Regina stops. And she meets up with Zach, the bodyguard, and hands over an envelope. And now Jessica um, says, well, I think that's a a payoff that we just saw. So the next, the very next scene is Regina in her hotel room answering the door and it's Jessica. And she says that um, she had to pay off Zach to she, Jessica, want her cut now too. Jessica's like, no, I, I don't want any money from you. <laughs> what happened? And so Regina reveals that she spoke with Zach about wanting Cagliostro killed because she was so taken by him and his hypnotic abilities that she wouldn't have been able to do it herself to stay away from him. So she wanted him to be killed. So she offered money to Zach and then Cagliostro turned up murdered like the next day or so. So Zach then comes back around and demands money. Come to find out he had recorded Regina when she was talking to him about having Cagliostro murdered. So she then had to pay him. Now, next scene, it gets quick now. We're going from scene to scene. We're wrapping it up. So then we're now at In the Lounge on the stage where Cagliostro did his show and we have Lieutenant Burkamp, we have Joan and we have Jessica and Joan was like oh this is and they're going back and forth about suspects and the possibilities and impossibilities of it and Joan says oh this would have been perfect the jealous trapeze artist kills hypnotist how great would that look and Lieutenant Burkamp says, it's like I have six witnesses and none of them saw a thing. It's like they were deaf, dumb, and blind. Epiphany. And Jessica's like, repeat that. And he says something else. She was like, no, the last thing you said. Uh, deaf, dumb, and blind. She was like, that's it. That's it. So now the setup. We have... Joan at the bar sitting next to Bud and she sighs and basically signals that she wants to talk and she's like oh well you know Jessica solved the crime but you know I really shouldn't say anything and he's like oh no no no." it's like I I I, no you can tell me it's like as long as you don't publish anything until everything comes out he was like "I, I promise I promise so Joan tells Bud that Sherry Diamond is the person who did it. Like she lowered herself down to the balcony, um, got in, killed Cagliostro, broke the window, and then left through the balcony and let herself up or down or whatever. Because, you know, she's a trapeze artist. So of course she can do acrobatics, right? So of course Bud 
uh, takes this information. And the next scene, we're back at the crime scene, Cagliostro's room. And um, they ask Andy um, to go under hypnosis so that uh, because they have another hypnotist who thinks that they can um, open up his mind, remove the block so that he can tell them what happened, what he saw. He doesn't question the fact that there were five other people there and they asked him, but okay, whatever. So Andy is hypnotized and taken back to the night of the crime. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be hypnotized, but you'll see why I said it that way in a minute. So he says that it was Sherry Diamond um, who came in. She stabbed Cagliostro in the back. She then broke the window and left via the balcony the same way she came in. The hypnotist then brings uh, Andy back and says that you'll remember everything that you told us. And so he brings him out and Andy's like, oh my gosh, I remember. It was Sherry Diamond. She's the one. She stabbed him and then left through the balcony. Um, And they're like, yeah, no, that's not what happened. He's like, no, but I remembered it. I was under a trance. And they're like, yeah, no, you weren't. Um, That night or this night. Meet, she said his name. Sorry, I missed it. He's the blackjack dealer from next door. I'm guessing the casino next door. Um, And so Jessica breaks it down. She says, you used earplugs to block Cagliostro's strongest asset, his voice. And by doing that, you then um, pretended to be hypnotized. And once his guard was down, you got up and back was turned. You got up with a knife that you had gotten from downstairs, the kitchen, whatever, and stabbed him in the back. You then broke the glass and then sat back down and pretended to be in a trance when in fact you never were. And he's like, well, no, like, what are you talking about? You don't have any proof, you know, typical. And they said, yeah, mm, you're not a good criminal because besides the fact that you broke the window too far away from the lock, but you bought the earplugs at the casino's gift shop. Okay. (laughs) You couldn't even go to the casino next door uh, to get earplugs. <laughs> I guess he figured that nobody would ever put two and two together and realize how it was done. He obviously did not know Jessica Fletcher. <laughs> he had no chance at all. But you buy it from the casino gift shop? Really? So we then put all the pieces together. Jessica says that um, his father, Andy's father, was Bud Michael. No, I'm sorry. We then, Jessica then gives him the opportunity to, you know, make his statement, you know, make his confession. And so um, after the detect, the lieutenant's like, we could, you could do this the easy way or the hard way. We're going to figure out. Um, why you did this now that we know how you did it. He's like, I'll save you the trouble. Uh, Andy's father was Bud Michael's bureau chief. And 
that once that story came out that his father had approved, his father was fired. And um, after that, his father couldn't deal with starting over again. You know, at this point, he had a family. He had built up his reputation to be a bureau chief. He had built his career up and just to lose everything and to think about starting all over again. Um, he He couldn't bear it. And so he unfortunately um, took his life. And so from that point on, uh, Andy had been determined to get back at Cagliostro and that he he could not figure out a way. And then this opportunity came up and he just took it. And, you know, I feel bad for him because, well, one, the actor himself, like he kind of looks like uh, just some, a trusting, you know, guy trying to make it, uh, guy next door, you know, it doesn't look like he's going to murder somebody. You know, a lot of murderers don't look like they're going to murder somebody. But to have seen his father and he's in the same industry, uh, to see what it did to his father, to see what it did to Bud Michaels. Um, because I'm sure that as with his father as Bud Michaels' bureau chief, that he saw how dedicated Bud was to like exposing Cagliostro for being a crook or criminal. And what that did to him, and then after all of this came out and him being fired how it turned his life upside down, and then especially his father, that it's understandable that he would dedicate his life to, you know, murdering this man, like not even just exposing him, because he knew that after seeing what happened with Bud, it would be impossible to expose him. So, you know, his next option was to murder him, which is not really a great option in a civilized society. But not going to lie, I could understand it. Jessica also pointed out that he referred to the elevator as a lift, uh, indicating that he had spent time in Europe. So that was another puzzle piece connecting him to Europe, Bud Michaels to Europe, Bud Michaels' bureau chief to Europe, um, and equaling Andy as the murderer. Now it's the final scene. Jessica's outside. She's getting ready to leave. And Joan runs up and says, oh, I, I called New York. Everyone loves the idea. They, you know, it's great. They're excited about it. But, oh, um, do, do, do you want to write the book? Like, uh, please, 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 please. <laughs> I made more promises. Um, Jessica says, you know what? It's a great mystery. Yes, I'll, I'll write it. So Joan's like, ah, so yeah. Um, so they like the other ending with Sherry Diamond being the murderer. Uh, is that okay? And Jessica's like, it just her face says it all, like confusion. <laughs> she really doesn't know. And I think she's on the fence because um, except for her first novel, I think her books have been about murders that she solved, perhaps fictionalized, but this would be a very big departure 
from that style of writing. Now, granted, her first book, The Murderer, was a pregnant ballerina. So I don't know how many books she has written where she could kind of just throw this crazy one out there. Um, she did have one with drag queens. So I'm like, <laughs> you know, and a, and a dog who was used uh, to murder somebody. So there has been some crazy situations happening, but those could be slightly fictionalized because the true story was crazy. So this one, I think as is, is great. But, and I'm sure that's what she feels like. This is great as is, but they want this juicy, salacious ending. Uh, I don't know, like, but I do want to write the book. So seeing her go back and forth a bit in her facial expressions was a nice way to end this. So that's that on that. Uh, another great episode. Um, again, I only had to, I did have to fast forward because the domestic violence in the beginning was a bit much, just point blank period, but everything else (laughs) for every other reason though, this was a good episode. Next week, I will be reviewing capital offense. This is one that I, it's a good one. It's a good one. Season one really had some very strong contenders, but this is a good one. I cannot wait for you guys to hear that review. If you want early access, you can go over to Patreon to just me being dramatic on Patreon, or you can meet me right back here on whatever podcast outlet you are listening to and hear Capital offense. So, all right, you guys have an amazing week. Talk to you soon. Bye.